Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. It's easy when there is a security vulnerability or downtime or whatever for all of the idiots on Twitter to take over and start complaining. And I think actually a company coming out and saying, look, we do everything that we can to add value to our customers, to our users, but we're human beings and no software is perfect. And every so often we're going to walk into a really clear window and that's completely fine. And I think when you do that, what it does, it humanizes it. It takes the air out of the critic's wings. It builds a much closer connection between the company and the, and the audience. Hi, welcome to The Threat Show. I'm Darren Kinlan, VP of Technology at Fletch. My usual co-host, Chris Wilder, unfortunately can't join us this week, but rest assured we'll see him again in future episodes. Joining me this week is my special guest, Jono Bacon. Jono is a leading community and collaboration speaker, author, and podcaster. He's the founder of Community Leadership Core, an accelerator that develops industry-leading community engagement and growth via personalized training, coaching, and accountability, all tailored to your company's needs. He's developed a keen interest in technology early on, particularly after being introduced to open source by his brother in 1998. And this passion led him to various technology communities and later to Open Advantage, a government initiative providing open source training and consulting. He has an impressive career path, having served as director of community at GitHub, Canonical, XPRIZE, and Open Advantage. At Ubuntu, he led community strategy for one of the most popular technology platforms in the world, growing it into a community of millions of users. Jono's authored People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business, Brand, and Teams, and The Art of Community Books. He's also written extensively for publications, including Forbes, Fortune, O'Reilly, Radar, and more. And he's a regular keynote speaker at community management and organizational leadership events. Wow. Welcome to the show, Jono. <laughs> Thank you. That's one heck of an intro. You need to move into my house. Can you say that to my friends who come over? <laughs> I can leave it as a voicemail recording for you. <laughs> you make me sound good. Uh, the reality, I think, is less impressive. No worries. Well, later on, we'll be talking with Jono about his insights on community building and cybersecurity, crisis communication, and getting people to be more collaborative and think outside the box. But first, let's run through the numbers for this week's trending threats. And it's kind of surprising what we found. Last week on our show, we covered a bit of a spike in activity. This week, it's actually a little bit of a lull. And that's not to say that nothing's happened over the past week, but compared to the week in the middle of Memorial Day weekend, we had a ton of activity and it kind of shows with the numbers. But if we double click into this, even though we're net down by about 11 major threats, there was a lot of activity, mainly around major threats that have transitioned from being emerging, where one or two outlets were covering it, to more than four that's now essentially mainstream. We did have a number of threats that went inactive, meaning we haven't seen anything new from them over the past month, effectively. But when we look at what was interesting over the past week, we found that there's actually a number of different vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities spanning major, major products, platforms, and even a supply chain issue. So let's get into the details. This week marks Google's third zero day for the year, and it's a big one. This is another remote code execution vulnerability that Google has since patched. If you go in and update your browser, it's likely the update will get pushed to your system. You just have to restart Google Chrome on a regular basis in order to remain up to date. But the tough thing is that there's already been 
confirmed evidence of exploits in the wild related to this vulnerability. So definitely want to patch this soon and mainly because this is now going to be popularized and used by a number of different threat groups, even cyber criminal groups, now that the details of the vulnerability have been disclosed. So when we talk about the types of zero days that we've seen from Google Chrome in the past, three is actually smaller in this time frame compared to last year. Does that mean we'll probably see another three zero days for Google Chrome or maybe more? It remains to be seen. We'll know once we wrap up this year accordingly. Next on our list is actually another vulnerability related to a file transfer service, not Excellion, but a different vendor called MoveIt Transfer by Progress Software, formerly called Ipswich. There is a SQL injection vulnerability within that particular on-prem appliance that's designed to share files or content securely across organizations. Unfortunately, the CLOP ransomware gang, also known as TA505 or FIN11, I think Microsoft refers to them as Lace Tempest, but they've actually successfully compromised multiple different organizations, including British Airways and the BBC, specifically using this particular vulnerability, and they did it over Memorial Day weekend. Surprise, surprise. We're still understanding the fallout from this activity. Hundreds of different organizations are impacted by this. CISA has already released an advisory saying if you have and use this particular technology, definitely patch as soon as possible. We'll understand more of the effects of this in the next couple of weeks, potentially month, as the demands and disclosures start coming out. But essentially, this is kind of a wake-up call for a lot of small, medium-sized businesses that use any sort of file transfer systems. Definitely want to make sure that those systems are protected, secured, and patched on a regular basis. Third on our list, we talked last week about vulnerabilities related to Zysol, specifically one particular vulnerability involving remote code execution. Unfortunately, this week, there's now two additional vulnerabilities also related to remote code execution. So if you have not patched <laughs> this particular equipment yet, definitely want to do so as soon as possible. Is this the end of it? Are there more? Chances are we might see one or two additional ones. So don't be surprised if you have to patch this equipment multiple times. You might want to consider just removing it, replacing it, if that's untainable in your organization. And last on our list, a research team over at Eclipsium discovered that there was a supply chain vulnerability related to gigabyte motherboard manufacturer. Specifically, a number of different gigabyte motherboards have an auto update system that's designed to keep your firmware on these devices up to date and secure. Unfortunately, though, the update mechanism downloads those firmware updates over the web through HTTP, not HTTPS. That allows an attacker to slip in malware and potentially trick your Windows system into running that code as administrator or root. This is pretty bad. It's pretty serious. It affects over, used to be 270. I think we're now up to 406 different motherboard makes and models. Thankfully, Gigabyte has released firmware updates to solve this problem. Unfortunately, though, it's going to be a painful process of going through and identifying, okay, which motherboards do you have in your organization that are manufactured by Gigabyte, and then applying those patches accordingly. 
Unfortunately, though, if you don't apply the patch, it's only a matter of time before cyber criminal elements will use this to compromise your infrastructure. So definitely be safe out there. And that kind of wraps up our trending threats of the week. Now, I'd like to have a, a more deeper conversation with our guest speaker, Jono. So we've covered a number of different threats, not only this week, but in past weeks. Mm. I think one of the biggest questions that small, medium-sized businesses struggle with is how to best communicate to their communities of customers when they get breached or compromised. How do they provide assurances, but not necessarily try to set unrealistic expectations about what the issues are and what they're doing to resolve the problem? So from your perspective, like what are some of the best tips and strategies that you can think of that would help a small, medium-sized organization assure their customers in a way that makes sense and is realistic from a crisis communication standpoint? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the way I tend to think about this is that as a general philosophy, sunlight and safe sunlight is always the best disinfectant, right? So the more open you are with your audience, the better. Obviously, I think within the context of security, you want to make sure that you are not disclosing a vulnerability until a fix is available and you can distribute that in a safe manner. But mm -hmm. in terms of how you communicate outwards, I think an inspiration for this, while it's not specifically related to security, it's more related to downtime, is actually from GitLab. So back mm. in 2017, I think it was, GitLab had a pretty major outage. Like one of their engineers basically fat-fingered an update and everything went down. And they went through multiple layers of backups and nothing was working. Now, a lot of companies, what they would normally do is they would button down the hatches, they would post some message out on social media, and then they just would not engage with anybody. And the gossip machine would spin up and say like, what's going on? Why isn't this working? Why isn't this working? But what GitLab did is instead, one, they spun up a Google doc and they invited their community and users to come in and actively try and debug what was going on. And mm -hmm. two, they actually spun up a live YouTube stream where they were live evaluating what was going on with this particular outage. And it generated this hashtag that trended on Twitter called HugOps. Mm -hmm. And what right. was so refreshing about this was that they incorporated their audience, their customers, their community members into the process. They didn't just shut people out and then have some PR wonk post some groveling message <laughs> apologizing what was going on. So I think that to me is a North Star for how companies should operate. Because what it does is the closer you build the connection between the company and your users, your customers, your audience, as a general rule, the better. But obviously, you've got to do that in a way that's going to be safe and effective if you're dealing with security issues. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like almost humanizing the problem or issue where yep. people can see that there's people that are passionate about fixing it and they're trying to incorporate as much feedback as possible in close to real time as possible is absolutely one of the best strategies for dealing with this type of problem. I'm curious, do you see this now becoming the new norm for most organizations or is it more tied to company culture perhaps where some companies just don't have the DNA to be able to do something like that? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think it's becoming the norm, but I think it is changing. When we look at the incentive model for different groups inside of companies, mm -hmm. they're anchored in different areas that can resist this kind of thing. So for example, one of the things I, I say to members of the community leadership court, to people who I've worked with, is never ever put a lawyer in front of a creative process, right? Because lawyers, by definition, are incentivized by risk mitigation. So they will suck all of the energy out of anything exciting in a company. Like I've got nothing against lawyers and they keep everybody legally safe and sound. 
But if you're trying to do anything creative, don't let a lawyer in the room, keep them out of the room. And I think it's the same thing in some cases with PR folks is that the amount of companies who I've worked with in the past where there's an appetite, a senior leadership appetite, and certainly for the ground troops as well, just to be honest and real with people. And then you get some PR folks who'll step in and say, well, basically they're incentivized to control the message. And I think when you don't control the message, you actually open up oxygen for people to feed into the process. I think this is going to naturally change because I think that we're living in an era now where young people have grown up not only with the internet, but also grown up in a world of social media where, right. you know, years ago it was, if you had an issue with a company, you call a 1-800 number. Now it's completely normal to be able to interact and engage with people on social media. And I think that changes the dynamic that people have with companies. So I think it's going to wow. change, but there's going to be some hard lumps swallowed before we get there. So Yeah. I mean, the internet has in many cases, like a memory that spans forever, right? Yeah. And one of the artifacts of that is really around accountability, holding people, companies accountable for what they've done, what they said they were going to do. And that's really hard. And a lot of organizations haven't quite adopted the model of, hey, we got this wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and here's what we're doing next to improve it. I think when we talk about crisis communication specifically, it feels like there's a big push to not disclose that something was wrong to begin with, rather than just acknowledging, hey, this bad thing happened. Yeah. And now here's what we're doing next, right? You don't just end it with this yeah. bad thing happened. Sorry. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's interesting you say that because one of my core beliefs in how you build companies and how you build communities and just how you build anything that human beings are going to consume and use is to break down the power dynamic, right? So in every mm -hmm. room, virtual or in person, there's a power dynamic, right? So I mean, a good example is this show, like you have the power because you're the host of the show, and there's a natural power dynamic, and that's going to influence and change the way in which we have a conversation. But before we started recording, you made it very clear, like, I want this to be a very open conversation. So it equalized the power dynamic. It's the same mm -hmm. thing when people go for a job interview, like the person who you want the job from has got the power in the room. And I find that when you equalize the power, what it does is it takes the stress level down. So for example, when I'm working with folks and they're building communities, the natural inclination around the power dynamic is that, oh, the person, the community manager, the DevRel person, whoever it might be, who's facilitating the community, they have the power. They're responsible for making this an environment that is going to be useful for folks. And what I say to those community managers, DevRel folks is to go out there into your community and say, look, my responsibility here is to make this a space that's valuable for everybody. A place that is rewarding, where you're gonna learn a ton of stuff, where you're gonna be able to solve problems, that's very inclusive, all of those different pieces. But to say to your audience, but I can't do this alone. The only way in which I can do this is if you feed into the process. So what you're doing is you're saying, I have this power, but what I'm doing is I'm equalizing it across the group. And you have to play a role if you want this place to be effective. And I actually think the same thing needs to happen in companies where it's easy when there is a security vulnerability or downtime or whatever for all of the idiots on Twitter to take over and start complaining. And I think actually a company coming out and saying, look, we do everything that we can to add value to our customers, to our users, but we're human beings and no software is perfect. And every so often we're going to walk into a really clear window and that's completely fine. And I think when you do that, what it does, it humanizes it. It, A, completely mitigates a lot of the criticism in many ways. It takes the air out of the critics' wings. But what it does is it builds a much closer connection between the company and the, and the audience.
That makes sense. So from your perspective, when an organization decides to invest and build a community for a variety of purposes, what are some of the things that you look for to kind of measure the success or impact of that community? I'm of the view that with every question, there's always like a philosophical layer and then a really practical sure, sure. Practical layer. The philosophical layer here is to start with is that to me, what a community is, is it's a group of people. It's a network of minds. And a successful community will get all of that insight, that expertise, that talent out of that collection of brains and put it into a space that people can consume. So mm -hmm. if you've got a company and you've got 20 people who work for your company, you're essentially renting those brains out, right? By paying your staff members. And you, you can tap into those brains and that experience. When you build a community, you're not limited to those 20 brains. You can bring in hundreds of potential community members and get all of that insight out. So getting all of that out into the ether becomes a really valuable place. So the ultimate success of a community is achieving that. It's getting all of that insight and expertise and creating the incentive model to get it out into a shared space where people can benefit from it. And the most rewarding communities in the world do that. So that's the philosophical layer. But to do that, mm -hmm. fundamentally, what you have to do is you need to make that community super valuable. And one of the challenges that a lot of companies have is when they try to build communities is one, they start with evangelism. They go out and they hire an evangelist and right. many of these folks are super talented and they go and like go to events and create content, do social media and things like that. But then what happens is you bring all these people to your front door, but if you don't have a really natural value centric onboarding, then you lose mm -hmm. those people. It's one of the reasons why you find discord channels with a couple of thousand people in there and no one's talking. So to me, the tactical way in which you do this is before you even do any of the evangelism is you design, you know, like how there's that the first 90 days book and people do mm -hmm. like 30, 60, 90 day plans. You sure. do something similar for your community where you basically say, what do I want the first week to look like? And you over engineer providing value to your new members in a way that's super low friction. So if, let's say you're a security engineer. What are the pain points that security engineers are dealing with? Well, how do they manage the work that they're doing with engineering teams in the company? How are they dealing with their bosses and stakeholders? There's been a bunch of tech layoffs. They may be worried about their job security. When we start resolving those pain points and you do it multiple times, multiple touch points at the beginning of that journey, it eases that journey into the community. So I look at the performance of those initial onboarding moments and you can actually do a lot. You can automate a lot of this with email and other things. But then the overall major metric of success is that one in five members of your community should be active. So that's going to be replying, posting, clicking on those silly little emoji icons, <laughs> those kinds of things that one in five people, 20% is the general industry norm for engagement. But that is 20% of the people who are actually showing up and, and looking at your community, your discord or your forum or whatever. So, right. And do you see the strategies being different for like a community that's built for, let's say, external customers versus communities that are entirely internal, just for internal employees, perhaps? There's kind of two layers to that. Like, I think that the way in which you incentivize and excite human beings to feed into a group space, if you will, is largely the same, like without being overly critical of the human condition and all of our many and very differences, we are basically bags of blood and bones that were incentivized by adding value to our own lives with the least amount of friction and assuring security for ourselves. So the incentive model around how you get people participating is relatively similar. I tend to use a lot of the same techniques with companies. Like I've worked with companies like Samsung, Deutsche Bank, Huawei, Santander, like in building these kinds of internal communities. And the mechanics are largely the same. The difference 
is the power dynamic inside of a company is way different because you've got right. the senior execs who in many cases are like, yes, we should have all of our people collaborating and engaging together. And the troops on the ground are like, yeah, this would be, make my job way more fun and engaging. But then you've got that meaty middle management layer who have got all of the responsibility, none of the resources. So they're kind of put in this awkward position where they have to deliver on this. And what it nine times out of 10 comes down to is if you can get that middle management layer on board and you can get them feeding into building out your community, you'll probably be successful. But the big elephant in the room, this raging mm. elephant in the room is, okay, if you've got this internal community, if someone takes an hour in your internal community, that means they're not spending an hour on their to-do list. And are right. you actually okay with it when the rubber hits the road? And that is the thing that if you can crack that nut, then internal communities are usually pretty successful. So makes sense. And do you have a particular philosophy or approach to how organizations should manage misunderstandings or misinformation that might be discussed on their platforms and the community platforms? Is that a concern at all? Yeah, I think there's a couple of pieces to this, like the, the misinformation or people just being overly critical or misrepresenting mm -hmm. something that's going on. You know, I think human beings, we psychologically live in the shadow of the people we're critical of, right? So if you look at, I mean, the classic example is politics, right? If you're like a Democrat and you look at the Republicans, you tend to zone in on all of the critical things, all, all the fears that you have that Republicans are going to do that's going to be negative. And it's the same the other way around. The Republicans will look at what are the risks that the Democrats are bringing to our nation, right? So the first thing I think you do is you, again, you equalize that shadow. You recognize it and you acknowledge it. So if, if you're dealing with a misinformation in a community, I'll give you an example. When I was at Canonical and we were building Ubuntu, we mm -hmm. built this new Linux desktop environment called Unity. And at the time it was unbelievably controversial because we as a company were building it. There are a a subset of people just hated this. Like it was just, they were so just like dripping with anger over the fact that we had the audacity to build this open source project called Unity. So the way in which I approached this was I, first of all, identified the shadow. I said, look, I understand the fears around this. Like you're worried that we're going to build this thing and then maybe we'll stop making it open source or we won't entertain voices and input from the community and that we right. may design something that sucks, right? So by identifying the shadow, it meant that they knew that I was aware of that. Right. But then really just zoned in on one, correcting the record. And then two is really expecting accountability from the person who's being critical. An example of this most recently was Elon Musk when he was interviewed by the BBC. And the guy at the BBC was saying, there's all this hate speech on Twitter. And Elon Musk was like, give me an example. And he couldn't come up with an example. And we have to do that. We have to say, okay, I'm willing to entertain this criticism, but give me concrete specifics so we can actually right. have a conversation about it. The worst thing to do is to just say, oh, those people are stupid, or right. we're just going to ignore them because that's just a pathway to failure. Right. So it sounds like active engagement, communication, trying to build a bridge, trying to be as transparent as possible are all ways to kind of address this so yeah. that it not only assures the critics of what you're trying to accomplish, but also assures maybe third-party bystanders who are just looking at the communications going back and forth. Exactly. It's funny you say that because that to me is a key element of this is you're not dancing in your room by yourself. You're dancing on TV in front of other people. So you're going to want to make sure that it's not just how you engage. It's the optics of how you engage as well. One of the other things I'll say real quick, because I just, I think this is important for society is 
I think the first thing we have to do as well is look at the intentions of the human being, because it's easy to get wrapped up in the words that people say and the tonality in which people engage and things like that. But in many cases, what can appear like a very negative, misanthropic kind of communication has actually got fairly benign explanations behind it. A classic right. example is when English is somebody's second language, right? Sometimes people yeah. can come across differently because they're speaking in a different language and it can be like people have different levels of experience when it comes to problem solving and how they communicate and things like that. So I look at the intention of the intention. If I believe the intention of somebody is good, even if right. they rabidly disagree with me, I'll engage with them. If I believe that they're malevolent and they are just out to do harm, then ban those people, get rid of them. Makes sense. So in terms of specifically around cybersecurity, can you share any specific initiatives or strategies that you've used to encourage your members of your community to think differently about cybersecurity issues? Like, is there any best practices or tips around that that you've acquired over the course of your many years of doing this? I think there's kind of like an engineering element to this, right? I, I'm not the best person to kind of feed into this because I think just building out really comprehensive CICD and test-driven workflow and engineering workflow is, is one key element of that. Where I think it bleeds into the community more is building a set of trusted relationships with your community members so they can play a role in security and risk mitigation. For example, if you have a community of a thousand people, and right. as I mentioned earlier on, 20% of those people are active. So let's say 200 of those people are active. They'll probably be maybe 20 or 30 of those people who were just like super engaged. And I think mm -hmm. bringing them into the fold, building a trusted relationship, even getting them to sign an NDA and basically saying like when something, when, when a security issue pops up or there is a concern around security is bringing them into the conversation and bringing them into the discussion is really helpful. I mean, obviously you've got to make sure that they're highly trusted, they're not bad actors. But that mm -hmm. is one of the things I, I recommend, and not just with security, but with the development of your product, with the challenges that you're facing as a company, right? Like the amount of value I've seen when companies are really wrestling with a market challenge or they're wrestling with product market fit or whatever it might be, is right. actually having a conversation with your audience because they've got all the answers. And we <laughs> try to kind of divine these as companies. So that's the one thing that I tend to recommend. The other as well is how you can spin up an infrastructure with your community members to feed into things like documentation and engineering. I'll give you an example. When I was at Canonical, we announced the ill-fated Ubuntu phone. So this was Ubuntu for all these different devices. Yeah. And it was actually pretty cool. It's a bummer that it didn't work out. But we hired like hundreds of engineers to build out this operating system, but we didn't have anyone assigned to building out the core apps, things like an email client and calendar app and a weather app and things like that. Mm -hmm. so Mark Shuttleworth, the founder of Canonical, called me and he said, do you think we can find some community members to help with this? And we identified some of our strongest, most active members of our community. And in about three or four months, they built like 10 apps. Wow. Um, it was it was phenomenal. And I'm, I'm not patting myself on the back when I say this, because it was way bigger than than my work here. But because it was an environment that was very much people invested in the environment, it meant mm -hmm. that you could open the door to having a conversation with someone about, are you willing to commit some amount of your life to software engineering? And I think when you do that, when you can tie those committed members into your security posture as well, then it gets really interesting.
that's a very powerful theme that you mentioned, which is really like bringing community members into the fold so that they feel like they have a stake in what you're trying to accomplish. Right. And tracing their contributions to the actual next version or the next feature is incredibly powerful, right? They have this strong investment in seeing this thing grow because they were a part of it. They helped contribute. Yeah. So it's yeah. not just taking their their feedback and trying to work it into a black box. And then nine months later, you say, hey, here you go. Instead, it's more like, hey, this idea that you had, well, we're at this stage of it. And here's yeah. some of the effects of that. And just providing that incremental transparency can be huge, right? Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing. And, and it's interesting because, you know, when people think about building communities, one of the first things people will, will ask me is like, what kind of swag do I send people? Um, <laughs> and what's interesting about it is that, you know, there's intrinsic rewards and extrinsic rewards. And swag is the extrinsic right. reward. Like you get some right. T-shirt or a mug or some terrible Bluetooth speaker or something <laughs> gets sent out to you. But what really resonates with people is the intrinsic validation. Right. If you do something in a community that's helpful, is getting an email from the CEO, a one-line email that just says, you know what, we really appreciate what you did there. It's people like you that makes our community special. That single sentence means way more to that individual than any piece of tap that you send them via the mail. Right. And that kind of hooks into that, like making them feel part of the solution as opposed to just being a passive consumer. That makes sense. I mean, it feels very similar to some of the challenges in managing like a successful bug bounty program where you've got all these different external security researchers all poking and prodding yeah. your services. And on some level, they're finding stuff that can be quite bad, you know, quite impacting to the business. But at the same time, you want to keep them engaged. You want to keep them focused on helping improve the security of the overall service or product. And acknowledging their contributions is exceptionally valuable in terms of feeding that perpetual flywheel, right? Yeah. Yeah. When I started consulting, one of my first clients was HackerOne. Mm -hmm. I've known this, the CEO there, Martin Mikos, for a number of years, and he actually joined as CEO around the time that I started consulting. So he pinged me and he said, like, hey, could you come and help us with our community? It was the first time I really worked with a bug bounty company before. And HackerOne are just doing amazing work and have done for many years. They're such a phenomenal company. And I mean, Martin's great, but just their founders, their team members, they've got an incredible community. One of the things that was fascinating about the bug bounty world was, as a general rule, whenever you have a financial monetary incentive, it can really skew the behavior of people. Crypto is a perfect example of, of right. what we've seen. But what was fascinating about HackerOne, and very deliberately designed by them, was you've got this financial incentive model. Like If you find a vulnerability and you submit it and it gets accepted and approved, you get paid. But there was a real sense of community between these security researchers where they would share and learn with each other, a great level of camaraderie between them as well, because it was a pseudo competitive environment, right? People in many cases trying to do like work on the same kinds of issues, but also there was, I'd say a healthy level of ego where hmm. like, because these folks were kind of going up in these leaderboards, there were rock stars born in that world. Wow. And actually, one of the early extrinsic bits of swag that we sent out, this was an idea from this guy called Ted Kramer, used to work there, was we put together to recognize some of the like the most active members of, of the HackerOne community. We made some comic book superhero covers where the hacker was like a superhero. And we like framed it, got the whole team to sign it, and they loved it. 
And part of it was like that sense of like, you're a rock star, like you're a hacker, like this is incredible. So it was a world where I was honestly expecting the dynamics of a financially incentivized model to break down at some point. And right. it, didn't. it didn't. It kind of boggles my mind that it, it is a model that works so effectively. And many companies are using bug bounty programs, obviously, as, as a mechanism to really increase the security. So, Yeah, it's a combination of factors. It's not just monetary incentives. It's yeah. actual recognition. It's being able to operate in a safe space where you've got the ability to kind of bounce ideas and learn off of other people as well. Those yeah. are all hugely rewarding attributes of what an awesome community is, but it takes effort. This is not like just set and forget it, walk away, right? You need someone full time to kind of shepherd this process. I'm curious, is there scaling factors that you've seen as communities have grown over time where you might need to have more involvement because of these particular aspects? The majority of companies who want to build a community around their product, their service, whatever they're doing, mm -hmm. the project, if it's an open source project, they wrestle in the early days with just getting people to engage, with just mm -hmm. getting engagement. And that's all about like dialing your audience in, really understanding your audience, really understanding those pain points, and just T-painting out value, right? Left, <laughs> right, and center. And the analogy I would have here is Netflix, right? If you open up Netflix, it's the same five TV shows over and over again. You're never going to open it up again. Like the reason why I use Netflix is not because it's Netflix. It's because of the content that's in there. So frankly, a lot of communities are just dull as dishwater. They're just a bunch of Q&A. And there's no reason for someone to go back. So a lot of the early stages of a community is really focused on that. And the good news is that you really only need one person to kind of facilitate and grow that kind of like to zone in. You need a good person. And that's that's what I do with the Community Leadership Core is I help companies who invest in building communities get the best possible results through coaching and training, whatever else. But as a community grows, as you get more and more people in there, you do face a unique challenge in you're dealing with scale. So it's tempting to put boring, less personable kind of workflows in place to deal with scale. Like instead of someone joining a community and their first interaction being with a human being, that it's with a bot and they have to go and fill out a type form to get started and stuff like that. And it's a challenge that the probably 1%, 2% of communities have to deal with because most people don't deal with that level of scale. They deal with enough where they can handle it with one or two or three community managers or DevRel folks. But when you get to, like we had this in Ubuntu, I mean, we had hundreds of thousands of people actively participating and it was wow. a great problem to have but a stressful problem to have. But I don't think that's something you throw bodies at. I think that's something you throw really thoughtful workflow at. And that's where you include your community in doing it. So it's not like go and fill in this boring type form. It's how can we architect a really natural journey to mm -hmm. deal with that instead of just making the friction on the side of the community member. I think to your point, unique, valuable content plays a big role into getting people to engage consistently. Yeah. And that's yeah. not easy, right? Yeah, yeah. It's getting easier with generative AI is really helpful here with the content hmm. piece. But the one thing I would say to everybody watching this is do not use things like ChatGBT to just spit out content without any context. So a lot of people are doing this where they're saying, hey, go and write me a 1500 blog post about you know, <laughs> chickens or whatever. And you get, frankly, you get just, it's, you just get kind of meaningless, vaguely passable drivel. Right. But if you, for example, take, a transcript, this is what I do. I take a transcript from a video of me answering a question or a YouTube video or something like that, feed that into ChatGPT so it learns about what you actually said and then use that to reframe right. the content. That's incredibly powerful. So 
Yeah, no, it, it can be very helpful, especially if your audience learns and consumes content in a variety of different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jono, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you about all of these corresponding issues. I, I think I've learned so much just in the short time we've had a conversation here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate you having me on. So to our audience, thank you again for tuning into this week's episode of The Threat Show. Starting next week, we'll be taking a brief hiatus from our normal schedule, a summer break, if you will, paused until after the July 4th holiday. But not to leave you all hanging, we'll be releasing our best of video series during this pause. Cliff notes and highlights of past episodes split by theme over the show's first 33 episodes. Starting next week, our theme will focus on understanding and defending against social engineering attacks. We'll be resuming our regular format starting the week of July 11th, and we'll go over changes we saw to the threat landscape while we're out. In the meantime, have a good few weeks and stay safe out there. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the Threat Index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats.